So whether you are spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you are listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. For those of you who don't know us, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas, transport for London, transport for Greater Manchester, transport for West Midlands, and for all the other major metro areas as well, serving over 20 million people. As well as being a body that thinks ahead about what's next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and we can and do learn collectively from these events. At the Urban Transport Group, we like to look ahead to what's next on urban transport policy. So delighted to give some space at this event to talk about how we can do more to ensure that tech serves the full diversity of our urban areas and that we have a people-led approach to tech. And we could not have better people to discuss this with and we'll get to know them more shortly. But by way of introduction to our guests, uh, we have Carla uh, Jakeman, who's the Innovation Lead for Connected Transport, part of the Land and Maritime Transport team at Innovate UK. She's also the Vice Chair of ITS UK, a member of the Highway Sector Council and a lead stakeholder for the Transport Technology Forum. Prior to Innovate UK, she worked for 15 years at a large automotive company as a design quality engineer. Uh, we also have uh, Natalie Gravatt, uh, a transport planner and modeler at Arup, working across a range of transport modes and geographies. Before joining Arup, Natalie studied a BSc in Geography at the University of Exeter and an MSc in Environmental Management and Policy from London University in Sweden. Natalie also worked on the report we recently published with Arup on equitable future mobility, ensuring a just transition to net zero transport. And our interviewer is Rachel Murphy, the Scotland Director for Como UK, moved to Scotland 10 years ago to study French and Hispanic studies at the University of Aberdeen and worked for the Community Transport Association for three years. She's a trustee of Lothian Community Transport Services, a founding board member of the Scottish Rural and Islands Transport Community and sits on the board for Aberdeen University's master's course, Transport and Intelligent Mobility. And with that, I'll hand over to Rachel. Thank you so much, Jonathan, and I'm hoping that my rural transport credentials haven't chucked me out of this event, but I would say I'm also originally a Londoner, so I feel like that's got to win me some points as well. I'm so excited to be interviewing these wonderful speakers today, um, and I thought just to get us going, I would ask the question that I always love asking in transport circles, which is, why did you get into transport? Because you always get wonderfully diverse answers. But I think I want to kind of add a little adjunct to that as well of what's kept you in transport. So Carly, you've got your thinking face on. So how did you get into it and what's kept you here? Um, I kind of fell into it, if I'm honest. Um, I actually did a Japanese degree, so very different to transport. Um, and then ended up working for, for Honda and fell into transport and have been here ever since what 25 years or so now um don't start working out my age um and um yeah I think the thing that keeps me here really is I work on the innovation side of transport so I get to see what's coming next and all the exciting um technologies and the way we can help people going forward so I think it, I'm in a very privileged position really to be able to to see what's coming around the corner and I think that's that's the uh the, the exciting side of transport that's kept me kept me in this industry. Very good. I like another linguist turned transport nerd. It's, it's a kind of <laughs> there's a, a few really of us around. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm glad it's not just me. I felt quite lonely. <laughs> Natalie, what about you? Um, so yeah, at school I've always been sort of a generalist, and I kind of like that about transport. It's you've got all the sort of social side. You've got a bit of maths in there, a bit of modelling. Um, and obviously all the environmental side. Um, so it's just kind of a perfect career path for me. Um, can't really say what's kept me in transport because I'm sort of early careers, but um, yeah, I think it's a great time to join the transport sector. Um, so much change and uh, so much diversity at the moment. So excited. That's brilliant. And Natalie, sticking with you, so Jonathan mentioned briefly the paper that you guys at Arup have been doing 
with Urban Transport Group. I was just wondering before we kind of get into the, the meat of the conversation, just for those who've not yet had the pleasure of reading it, if you could just kind of take us through the broadest points. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, the report is about um, equitable future mobility. So um, it's a report we wrote, yeah, we wrote together Arup and Urban Transport Group, and it's really looking at we're in this time where we really need to transition to net zero transport system, but we can't rush it because of the impacts that this could have inadvertently on marginalised um, groups and on different sectors of society. So the report is really looking at international best practice um, and also some sort of failures as well of what to avoid in terms of when you're bringing in new transport modes, whether it be e-scooters, e-bikes, or new subscription services, making sure that when you bring those in, you do so in the best possible way to get good outcomes for everyone. Absolutely, that's really helpful, thank you. Carla, I'm guessing you have had an opportunity to read it. What kind of jumped out to you? Um, well, I have, I have read it, I've read it a couple of times actually. Um, and I've got to be honest, I get to read a lot of documents in, in my job and there's nothing, I'm guaranteed to make my heart sink than an 80 page document with no images and just loads and loads of text um, to pull out the key points. I think this this document is a really well thought out um, and set out um, document when it goes into the all of the different considerations with um, with making fair and equitable transport with the, the availability, the accessibility, affordability. Um, acceptability you know look at breaking it down into those different areas um, it made it a really nice document to read because when you think about this area it, it can be overwhelming and it can appear like we're boiling the ocean um, but I think that the way this document sets it out um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a really nice document to read and I'm not just saying that because you're there Natalie but I do think it's a nice document to read and I read some not very nice documents so <laughs> There you go, ringing praise indeed. I I would totally agree with what Carla said, Natalie. I, I really found it very informative, but also yeah, beautifully laid out in a way that I didn't find myself sort of putting it down on page two and running to the coffee machine. One thing that really stuck with me after reading it was the sort of reference man. Now, I talk about this book all the time, and people are going to think I'm sponsored, but this book by Criado Perez, The Invisible Woman, was has really kind of stuck with me about this idea that so much in our world, but you know, particularly in transport, is based on the idea of a young, healthy, well-off, mostly white man. So, how, what's the antidote from for that? How do we move away from that sort of cookie cutter transport user? Because I think what really stuck out to me in the report was we're so aware that that just isn't working anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. That was a quite an inspiration for that part of the report. Um, and I think there's quite a few sort of sections within the sort of transport journey of design and implementation and monitoring that we can sort of, yeah, create antidotes for that. Um, first off would be, yeah, making the sector as a whole more diverse in terms of who's working in it. Um, obviously all the sort of public consultation and stakeholder engagement that we do um, and also I think what came out a lot when we were researching the report is about how much we rely on sort of journey to work data um, you know that's mostly what we use from the census and that's quite typically the reference man going from you know the city centre or the suburbs into a central business district going to and from and not really reflecting people traveling off peak or between areas or having different sort of patterns. So I think, yeah, co uh, correcting how and why and where we collect the data is quite a big starting point for making that change. Absolutely. Carla, yeah. any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th I think that the, um, the cookie cutter kind of model is very much a, a legacy that um, we are definitely moving away from. I mean, when I was in um, car design, the, um, it was very much based around the 95 percentile male. And that was actually for the majority in, in my industry, it was a Japanese male as well, who were very different um, to um, size-wise, et cetera, to, um, to maybe a, a German male or a German female or a British female or a 
you know, the, go, going through all those different cultures. Um, and gradually we've moved away from that to, to, to make the basics of, of a car design, but then the, the systems design of transport, we are gradually making it more and more um, diverse and less cookie cutter. Um, it's quite hard to say that, but cookie cutter, um, so that you know we are bringing in different aspects, which I think it, the, that we've got to keep doing that, and it will keep changing as well. We can't say right, we've got this model now, and that will be it. It's go it's going to change through the generations. That's really interesting. Thank you. That's really that, yeah. That's really interesting. I think to see it changing, and I think what you said there about actually we can't think we get it right now and sort of stop there. We've got to keep kind of evolving brings me beautifully onto future mobility, uh, which is, you know, what we're talking about, sort of where does just transition, net zero, accessibility and future mobility all come together. It's, it's quite a topic that we've we've got today. So I guess my I want to get a sense from both of you of where you feel we're at at this moment in time, sort of before we do more looking backwards or more looking forwards sort of stick a pen in right now, to what extent do you feel that inclusivity and fair design are being included in the examples of new mobility that you've seen recently? Either of you, jump in, go for it. I, well, if I start, I think that um, we've got an awful, awfully long way to go, um, but gradually, um, now things are starting to, to improve, and I think they will continue to improve with, for example, Sarah Sharples um, as Chief Scientific Advisor at the DFT, because it's very much her background, and we can already see things trickling down in this kind of field, which um, is, is really important, actually, that leadership from the top. Uh, I think that um, as we are bringing, bringing in new technologies, um, it's going to keep changing and we're going to keep um, developing in this area. But we've got a long way to go. Just, just the basics of making people feel safe cycling at night. Um, you know, it's such a basic one, walking home at night. They, they're, they're foundation things and we, we, we haven't got those right yet. So, um, but at least we're more aware of how we can improve those situations and we're looking into it. So we've got a long way to go, but um, I think there's this glimmers of light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you, Natalie. Yeah, I would echo that. I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of instances where the basics just aren't there. Um, I think there was a statistic in one of the recent reports on um, walking for everyone about only like 11% of older people can actually cross the road in time with the recommended, um, you know, light signals and just basic things like that and having step-free access at train stations and things like that. You know, we have to fix that at the same time as bringing in these new modes and new subscription models and all of this. So it's quite a, a tough, tough sort of situation to start improving things which have been wrong for a long time, as well as bringing in new things that we need to get right from day one. Mm. I think that's right with, with even the, the basics of active travel, active travel, for example, you know, making that accessible for everybody, which is um, where our paper on combo travel came in, that combination of, of enabling active travel for everybody, regardless of their, their, set, their shape, their physical, um, physical shape, <clears throat> excuse me, their, their age, their, their mental, um, mental health, their geographical situation, whether they're in rural areas. So Rachel, I also cover rural, so you, you know, you're not alone on that one. Um, so, whether, you know, getting from a rural to an urban area um, and their economic situation, whether people own a bike, for example, it's not accessible for everybody to be able to say, you know what, I can just start commuting to work now because not everybody can do that for a variety of reasons. So how can we make that, okay, I can cycle a bit of the way and then put my bike on the bus the rest of the way. How can we pull that combination of transport together to make that more accessible to, to more people? And, and that's certainly something that we're, we're working on at, at the moment um, to, to try and start drip feeding that option for more and more people. You've both touched on something that I, I kind of want us to dig a wee bit deeper on. You've both mentioned different modes and intermodality as well. And I guess my question is, are there modes that you think are doing this quite well 
Are there some sort of ultimate criminals that maybe we'll, we'll not go quite as deep into them? And then where do you see modes successfully or, you know, coming back to your kind of glimmer of hope, Carla, moving in the direction of prioritising accessibility, whatever form that accessibility may take in intermodal journeys? I think I, I'm most excited by e-bikes of anything. Um, I live in Edinburgh, so it's quite hilly. Um, and then you think about older people and think about more of um, suburban or more rural, then you can access more things because there's less physical activity needed. Um, I think e-bikes have a lot of potential, but at the same time, it's about getting those basics right again. If we still can't even provide safe storage for a cheaper, more conventional bike, people aren't going to want to spend thousands of pounds or sign up to cycle to work to get an e-bike and then risk it getting stolen. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential with e-bikes. Um, and there are some instances of where that's going well um, that hopefully we can learn from here in the UK. Mm. I would just at this point say that, you know, e-bike share for Edinburgh would be a fantastic thing. Um, just <laughs> let me get my way better there. <laughs> Pop that in. Carla, sorry, I interrupted you. you no, no, not at all. I'm struggling to think of one particular mode, really. I, I think, yes, the micromobility has um, definite opportunities, um, but I still think it's going to be this combination of, of modes um, that's going to be most helpful. I mean, even on... When you first asked the question, my immediate thought was um, public transport, really, with with buses that, you know, they have a, a lot of buses have step free access and the spaces for, for wheelchairs. And um, but then, you know, we're seeing more technology with regards to um, wearables, which tell you when you need to get off the bus. If you have visual impairments um, or, or you're um, you have hearing impairments, so you can't necessarily see the, the list on the wall on you know digital displays on the bus. Um, so I think um, I think they're definitely making um, good steps towards it, but I do think it's going to be this combination and, and the mobile phones as well. Um, the the use of mobile phones to help that connectivity between modes um, is going to be that information is going to be really important just to make it more and more seamless um, to give you the right data that you need. Say okay, I can get this bus or um this train will be at this time and just just giving you that information rather than a specific mode i think yeah that you meant you said this is not on my list of questions apologies but it, it just kind of came to my mind there when you mentioned public transport public transport is controlled by psvar in terms of the sort of minimum standards for physical accessibility now you'll hear people say well that's great because actually there is a standard that has to be met and then you'll hear other people that say having a minimum standard means that's all people aim towards. Do you think that that sort of level of regulation would be helpful in newer forms of mobility? Or do you think there should be a gold standard people aim for? What do you think that would look like for you? Maybe in, access, you know, in physical accessibility, but across a broader range as well. It's, it's always going to be tricky, that one, because there's, there's evidence to say in some countries where they mandated the use of bike helmets, for example, that, um, that cycling dropped off as a result. So it's getting that balance right between personal choice and safety and mandating certain things and, mm -hmm. and pulling those basic standards in. Um, but I do think when it comes to, well, I, I know when it comes to things like micromobility, those standards will be very important um, and, and will will need to be because at the end of the day, people could and will die a result, unfortunately, if, if those safety precautions are not there. Yeah, I think as well for um, electric vehicle charging um, and also electric vehicle charging for disabled users, quite often, you know, you'll see standard parking, um, electric vehicle charging parking, and then you'll see disabled parking. but what we found when we were researching the report is there's not really much going on in terms of what if disabled people want to be using electric vehicles they can't be left out of that transition um, and making sure that's the kind of thing that we would need minimum standards for to ensure that we've got enough space that it's comfortable um, that you're not impeding people with heavy cables and that everyone can be part of that transition um, but yeah with the with the micro mobility there's maybe like 
e-bikes and stuff, there is a bit more flexibility um, in terms of docking and, and that kind of thing, depending on the context. But yeah, there's, it's a tricky one to, to get the balance right. Absolutely. Just a reminder to our lovely audience at home, I have a whole set of questions, but please do make use of the Q&A function. If you have questions for our panellists, please try and keep them short and sharp. And if you see a question that you agree with that you'd like to hear an answer to, then you can upvote that and shift it up the list. So please do remember to put questions in the Q&A. I wanted to get a sense from you both around the opportunities, because I think we've spoken a lot about what the, what this could mean. Let's drill down into that. What are for you the, the hallmarks, the foundations of inclusive new mobility? What, when you kind of envisage new mobility, that's those four A's that is accessible in all those ways, what does that look like to you? And this can be a little bit utopian, blue sky thinking, um, because I won't be the one paying for it, so. <laughs> me. Um, I, I guess it's got to be connected it's got to be informative um, it's got to be seamless in a way that we don't necessarily have to really research a journey I mean you're, you, the end to end journey it starts when you know you've got to make a journey not when you actually leave the house um, or leave the building so um, I think that, that it just happens that would be utopia for me where you've not got to um, really think, right, I need to get this bus at this time and this train at that time. You know, it, it all just appears on my phone and the tickets, the, the money for the ticket comes out automatically, uh, you know, and you haven't got the, how do I pay? And, and all of that kind of um, malarkey, really, because that's what it is. It, it's an extra stress and hassle, which to a lot of people can be really tricky. Um, so if we can avoid all of that and make it as seamless and connected as possible, that for me would be a huge step forward. Yeah, I think maybe the future isn't maybe as far away as we think in terms of it. There's already good examples out there. I mean, everybody uses the Netherlands as, as a good case study, but what they're doing is, is great in terms of uh, that combo travel and, you know, the fact that you can book a, book a bus and a train and a, a shared bike all on the same ticket. You don't even need to tap it to get into a a luxurious bike parking facility it it senses it from from your phone you just walk straight through um and maybe we don't need to reinvent the wheel as much as we think and that there's already good solutions out there um but yeah i think also just making sure that when we're introducing new modes and new models that we have multiple ways of of purchasing tickets multiple ways of getting information online but also phones run out of charge not everybody has a smartphone making sure that there's always a you know really simple clear wayfinding strategy and you're not hunting around in an unfamiliar station or unfamiliar setting um yeah and just making sure that we have as many options and as much flexibility as we can to choose one mode one day and one mode the next day depending on where we're going and not really feeling oh I have to use my car because I've got one or I've got this season ticket so I must use the train every day um, but really using what you fancy that day or what's best for your trip or whatever you're carrying that day and that kind of thing. I feel like we're sort of circling around mobility as a service and that sort of digital platform version particularly Carla where you mentioned cost and I think being able to see a cost up front is really important to a lot of people um you know and i'm sure in the coming months will become even more crucial for for so many of us do you think that mass as it's envisaged at the moment kind of can solve all these problems um i definitely like to think that um going forward there will be um a huge place for mass it's not gonna it's not gonna work for everybody um but I think the majority of people, it, it will definitely work for because you will have these different levels of how much mobility, you know, what, whether you want an everything package or whether you just want a small package, a bit like you, you if you think about your, your, your comms package now with your, your mobile and your TV and your, your landline and, and your, your, your internet, for example, you know, what speed do you want? How many channels do you want on your TV? What, how many, um, how much, um, 
many gigabytes do you need on your mobile, for example, of data? All of those different things will be different for different people. And I think as long as we can get that model right, then it makes it more usable for more people. Yeah, I would agree there is potential for mobility as a service, but maybe one that's more local authority and public transport led than sort of shared cars or that kind of thing. Um, because, I mean, you've already got, you know, the public transport stations, you've got train stations, that that's where you've already, you've already got that as a route. Um, so then, yeah, bringing in modes to access and egress that is, is a good way to start rather than starting from, from a blank slate. So effectively using those sort of pre-existing natural travel hubs as sort of points from which to, to grow. Okay, that's an interesting way of thinking about. Just a reminder folks, please do put your questions into the Q&A section rather than the chat um, so that they can be upvoted by your colleagues. Um, so if you have put one in the chat, please do copy and paste it across because I, I don't read that fast. I can't follow all these different conversations. Thank you for being patient with me. Um, I think one of the questions I wanted to come back in, coming back to the idea of the, the reference man, how do we make sure that new modes, new mobility, doesn't just throw itself at young people with cash in their pockets? Because in a way that is the easiest audience, that is the people who have the most money to burn, are arguably the most likely to be open to changing their travel habits. How do we make sure that, you know, new options don't just stop there? I think the more we can do with information and pushing that message through events such as this and, and really, um, Educating the community sounds really patronising, and I don't mean it to, um, but to, to really try and pull all that information together. And I think we should be careful as well that it's not just a gender thing. You know, we are talking about different, um, different types of, um, for example, mental health um, conditions mirrors can be really tricky for people with dementia, for example. So don't put mirrors in, in your in your um in the elevators to take down to the tube those kind of things um you know there's so many different things that we need to need to consider um it's fast to be honest yeah yes it is it is all a bit sort of knackering when you think of it all as a one or isn't it um, yeah yeah we've got to consider all of it though yeah of course of course natalie any thoughts um I think just making making use of the data we have, like mapping it geospatially, you know, these are where the existing bus routes are, bus stops are, where are the gaps and what are, where are the um, more deprived communities and just making sure that when you, we bring in a new type of transport or really try and promote a new kind of mode that we're putting in the, the docking stations and charging stations where there are gaps and not duplicating um, places where they've already got plenty of public transport, they've already got a lot of options um, and really trying to, yeah, trying to love, you know, reduce those differences between places and people um, rather than just, I mean, quite often when operators, if they come into a new city um, with all kinds of micro mobility without any um, consultation, they'll put docking stations where it's most profitable. So going to and from the shopping centers and the main business areas. And that's great. And you can understand why they do it, of course, but more of a, a process where you work with the community and the local authorities to say, no, you can put some there, of course, but you need to also put some um, all around um, to make sure that we're filling in the gaps. It's that information, isn't it? It's provide it's it's getting that level of information um, to the right people as well, the people who are making these plans and um, providing that that um, that data to to get that all encompassing transport experience. I think because th this, I think that's what's nice about the document. Actually, going back to the document because it, it asks a lot of those questions. And I think if a lot of transport planners went through the list of questions that are in the document, I think that would go a long way 
actually to helping them think, well, okay, this here's a, a certain type of person. Is this transport accessible to them? Is it, um, does it meet all their criteria? And, uh, you know, there's lots of different types of people, as we've said, but I, it's not just all about those cash rich um, young white guys, as, as you said at the beginning, Rachel. So, I, it's funny you say that, Carla. I was in a session that Transport Scotland put on a couple of weeks ago about a policy that they're looking to introduce, and they were doing an equalities impact assessment. And we went through different elements of this policy and basically every single group that the Scottish government recognises as needing further protections and law and looked at how this, and it took hours and it was so worth that time. Yeah. I, I was really, I, you know, sitting there thinking, actually, if you don't do this, so, so much would come up in that time. That if, you, if we hadn't gone through that process, it kind of doesn't really, we don't want to dwell too much on actually what that would look like if we didn't take the time to do that. But I guess there was a bit of me that found myself thinking, it doesn't, you know, what I think, yes, it matters. And obviously I spend a lot of time thinking about transport, but how do we, coming back to something Natalie said very much at the beginning of this conversation, when we're doing things like public consultations, when we're introducing new options near people's homes how do we make sure that we hear everybody so that exactly as Jonathan said at the start this stuff is people-centered how do we you know what kind of have you seen working practically for involving everybody it's it's very difficult I think to get um all groups involved in public consultations because a lot of people will still think I know it says public on the tin but that's not for me um, you know, I, I'm um, I'm a, a young female with autism, for example, or something like that, you know, with ASD. Um, so it's very it is very difficult. And I think the more that we've got working with, um, with the more we work with organisations such as, as Como and the charities who who protect those um, protected characteristics in various whatever they are. I think the more that we can do that, but I think we've got responsibilities as well, also um, as, as parents as well, for example, you know, my, my 11 year old, he doesn't, my 12 now, doesn't like cycling home in the dark in the winter. That, that you know, how can we reflect that when it comes to transport planning? <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I think we've all got a responsibility to try and feed into those, but it's difficult to get the message out that this is open for you. It's public. Um, a lot of people still think, that doesn't include them for some reason. Mm -hmm. I think the way as well the consultations sometimes are, it does put people off. I mean, I'm quite keen to fill out public consultation. I work in transport. I, I have the means to do so. But sometimes it's a very lengthy survey. You don't always understand all of the questions and the terminology. Um, but just, you know, using tech to improve tech as well could be another, another way to do so. Um, you know, I've seen things where people can scan QR codes um, in, in a park and say how what's their opinion of the park? Is it clean? Um, using sort of mobile phone data, there's all sorts of creative ways we can capture um, people's opinions um, live as well, rather than sporadically when a consultation comes up. So, yeah, I think maybe being a bit creative mm. with how we collect data and engage with people as well. Yeah, I like that, that, that aspect of, you know, making it really simple. You scan a QR code and it's really easy to use. Um, I, I think getting involved with the communities as well in these areas. So, you know, if there's a, if there's a consultation on a new road through, um, through a village, for example, who's in the village that we can get support from? Is there a local coffee shop that can engage with getting the QR codes out and that kind of thing? So it's, it is thinking creatively. I think you're right, Natalie. I think there's all sorts of really cool new stuff as well. Like um, they have these sound labs now where, you know, that instead of someone saying, oh, I think it's going to be really noisy um, if you introduce this new bus route or something. Now you can actually listen to what that would sound like and things like that to really, you know, the average person looking at a CAD drawing of a, 
a bus route or a new piece of infrastructure it doesn't doesn't really use you know relate to that every day whereas using things like virtual reality where you can actually see what it's going to look like or even some of these more creative sort of sketches and things can really bring schemes to life yeah definitely you're right actually we said virtual reality um the connected places catapult did a, a project called eyewear a few years ago where you could put some vr goggles on and you could see what it was like to walk around a station a train station for example if you had glaucoma or you had age-related macular degeneration um or you know different i think it was four or five different eye conditions but but to, to show that to a planner or you know just to see what it's like for someone to walk around a station with these with these particular um conditions it was um it I don't want to say it's, it was eye-opening, but it really was, you know, it, it really was very interesting to see what it's like for, for people who were affected. I am, um, yeah, I experienced something quite similar at a transport event that guide dogs were at and they had effectively different goggles that kind of mimicked different eye conditions. And then they gave you a guide dog. You did it and then they you did it again with a guide dog. And it was just... You know, kind of that thing of people will always have needs, but what can we put in that actually mitigates that? It was just such a fascinating mm. experience. And I got to play with lots of dogs. So that was obviously also <laughs> the, the, the massive highlight of the day. Um, but yeah, no, I think it, it's such an important point, actually, isn't it? Of how do we walk around in people's shoes? Um, because we, we will only ever have our experience and the experience of people, you know, with whom we have relationship but actually how do we get that kind of broader broader vision um i think something that we have to kind of keep at the forefront of our our minds yeah. absolutely just to say there are some questions coming through so thank you very much for those do remember you can upvote those the ones that you like you're also more than welcome to add your own in as well um i wanted to kind of we've done some really good where are we at and I'd like us to look at how do we get there? So we've envisaged our, our transport utopia. How are we going to get there? What do you think has to change? The sort of fundamentals. There are so many things, as we've said. There are so many elements of this that need to change. But what do you feel like the, the quick wins, let's say, um, to fundamentally change how we deal with accessibility and new mobility and where do you think that responsibility lies? Well, lots of big meaty points in, that, in those questions. Sorry. Um, I think, no, 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 I get, it's, it's good. I think the responsibility, um, the responsibility lies with all of us to some extent because it's up to us to, um, to dip our toe in the water sometimes to make those changes, um, whether that's just changing to an electric vehicle or whether it's moving to um, active travel as a, as a mode to get it for getting to work. Um, and if you think before the pandemic, you know, not many people were on their bikes and then the pandemic hit, everybody suddenly got on their bikes. And we, um, from our side of things, we thought this is great. We've got to keep this momentum going. But of course, then it became too easy for people to get back in their cars. So, um, you know, how can we make, not make it, harder to get back in your car but easier to stay on your bike if that makes sense so looking at it the opposite way um so we've all got some kind of responsibilities to say you know what i am going to try and cycle more or i am going to use my car less um but then obviously it's down to the local authorities and uh, working with government and working with industry that collaboration to really try and bring some of the innovations to market, which are going to help a lot of those things to be easier, whether they are cycle routes or whether it's ride sharing or whatever those new business models are, which are part of this new mobility. Um, I think that it, it's, it's really important that the collaborative, um, holistic approach, not just government says this will happen, local authorities, you will do that because that's, that's, that's not going to work. We've got to be all working together. So we've all got that responsibility, I think. Yeah, I think you're all, <laughs> we all need to, to work better, I think, at understanding our current baselines and not just the trips that are happening, but the trips that aren't happening, like people not, not feeling comfortable to even attempt a bike ride or, um, you know, 
to walk kind of a not so pleasant way to a bus stop and you know capturing that is is, is difficult to capture the trips that aren't happening but you know there are new new ways of collecting data on trips walking and cycling trips as well as you know just classic traffic counts um but you know getting more rigorous data and actually seeing okay when you put this in you see it go up by this getting more understanding of what works and what works for who and what isn't working uh, i think we got a lot of good insights from sort of the temporary stuff uh, during the pandemic um, so hopefully that can help us, you know, design more permanent schemes. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it lies with all of us. And yeah, I agree with what Carla says about trying to make the right cho choice, the easy choice, um, and making it the affordable choice as well, because, you know, you might have um, a bike share scheme thinking they've got an affordable fee and you might have a rail operator thinking that's a good ticket price but when someone's using a shared bike to get to a train station you add those two fares up that's not affordable um, and really I think a lot of that comes uh, at the sort of city city region level of working with everyone that's operating in the city and the people um, to sort of yeah get 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 a sense of what, what people want and what's it going to take to make yeah, the right choice, the easy choice. I think the lessons learned as well, I think um, I totally agree with what Natalie just said. And I, I think that the more we can learn from the lessons um, from the, the pandemic, for example, of you know, the, the pop-up lanes, the pop-up cycle lanes uh, had very much had their place for a lot of areas, but they also um, in a lot of areas cause problems for people with blue badges. Um, and, and parking for, for disabled um, disabled people. So I, I think that, um, yes, it was done very quickly, but what's important now is we learn from what worked and what didn't work, uh, and that we really use that information to, to take it forward. I think that's, that's very important. Yeah, there's a case study in the, in the new report about um, parklets. Uh, you know, we're going to need to put in charging points for electric vehicles. Um, but while we're doing those, can we also put some benches so that people can sit and people can be outside getting fresh air? Um, can we also put in a couple of bike stands while we're at it and like using these sort of things that we're going to have to do to facilitate new mobility and decarbonisation to also improve things more widely you know can we put some planters in to improve biodiversity and sort of thinking using this as not oh no we have to put in charge points as actually this is an exciting opportunity that we can use we're already having to make the changes so let's let's not have to go in twice let's improve things while we're at it yeah definitely when you think about the the um um the four courts as we know them now at, at um petrol diesel stations I mean going forward they're going to have to change and they already are changing and, and they make most of their profit from the shop anyway not the fuel although I'm not sure at the moment um, but um, I, I think that different different models going forward for that um, will be um, really important to bring some of those different aspects in so it's not just oh we've got to put an electric charging point in what else can we put here I think Natalie's quite right what else can we put here and Phone charging, please, would be really useful as well. So that you know, those of us who need to can work while the car's charging, um, and and things like that. You know, it, it's just getting that really lateral thinking. Mm -hmm. That's the latest has been genuinely really so interesting. Um, and now I get to stop asking my questions and ask you everybody else's because there are some really good things that have come through as we've been speaking. First one I want to go to, just because it relates quite a lot to this, comes from Vanessa. And she says, transport conversations often revolve around what we need more of, but of course, space and resources, et cetera, are limited. And uh, having said earlier, let's do blue sky thinking, Vanessa, you're right, and my apologies. What do we need less of in transport and how can we get rid of these things? So Carly, you've obviously mentioned petrol stations as they currently are and the sort of translation of those what else can we sort of clear away to make space for this new transport future well, i mean obviously going forward there will be less pumps for the fuel more charging points um but i guess um 
I was thinking, you know, more um, hubs for, for meeting pods and, you know, for things like that to enable people to have a meeting um, so they don't have to travel into town. But that's not really answering Vanessa's question because she wanted to know what what do we need less of? Um, I guess we need um, less limitation. I guess we need less um, clunkiness between modes. We need less silos, fewer silos, sorry, um, and more joined up thinking when it comes to, to buying tickets and all of that kind of thing. So um, I'd, I'd say that's what we need less of. There's probably a lot more that we need less of as well. <laughs> Maybe not less, but I think we need lower speeds in a lot of areas. I think there's already a lot of urban areas trying to get 20 mile an hour zones and school streets and that kind of thing. But yeah, lowering speeds so that, yeah, maybe if you don't have the space to put in all the facilities and all the really wide, beautiful cycle, cycle streets that you would like, that people feel comfortable to walk alongside them and they can cycle and share space more readily. Um, yeah, I think lower speeds is a quick win. Um, less car parking would be good. I know it's a tricky one, um, but I think if you do it in tandem, you know, reducing the car parking and improving access to bus stops and things and uh, improving bus routes and that first and last mile access, we can reduce car parking space. Um, and I suppose sharing cars comes into that as well, being able to, to sign up for a car club or, um, sign up for a car sharing scheme instead of having to own your own car and then you don't have to have streets completely lined with cars but for using those for other things thank you for that opportunity to outrageously plug the como uk car club report for 2021 which finds that one car club car replaces 17 cars now if you think of 16 free spaces on the on your street Think of what that could be and we come back to Natalie's parklet idea. Um, so, yeah, think of 16 free spaces for everyone with a car club in it. I think car parking is absolutely, Vanessa, one that I would say we can do a lot for really quite quickly. Um, who else has got super well voted? Rachel Melly has a question. The GFT is expected to announce soon new statutory requirements for highway authorities, local transport transport plans excuse me will that include a requirement to consider accessibility inclusivity etc for women disabled people people on low incomes etc do either of you have the inside scoop on this i don't have the inside scoop on it um i would i could certainly go away and try and get some more information to feed back to rachel um but i would um I would be amazed if that is not considered, um, certainly from having um, ran competitions with both National Highways um, and, and with the DFT um, for, for Innovate UK. I, I would be amazed if those things aren't considered because they are up there very much, um, especially the safety aspects, which is you know very much at the front of, of uh, for National Highways. Um, I haven't seen them, so I don't know for sure, but I would be amazed if they're not. Um, especially going back to again to um, Sarah Sharples at the top of the DFT is, is very much um, her area. So I think she'd make sure it was. I'd like to think so anyway. Absolutely. Natalie, are you going to tell us you secretly know or? Uh, unfortunately, I don't. But oh. no, I, I'd like I'd like to see that. And I think we're heading in the right way. There's, you know, a lot of uh, documentation guidance out there that's more people-centric around 15, 20-minute neighbourhoods and inclusivity. Um, and hopefully we're going to start seeing more and more of that. You know, it's less about uh, the infrastructure, more about the people and what they need to support them in getting to where they need to go and, and living healthy, low-carbon lifestyles. That's great. That's really helpful. Thank you. There's a question here that I have never thought about before, but actually I think it's really an interesting one. How can you make transport and movement a priority for everyone it appears to be low on the agenda at least in mass media compared to housing productivity rising living costs i that's never it matt thank you for that question because I, I i guess we're so sort of in and amongst the transport bubble it can be easy to forget that everyone else isn't as obsessed as we are um so how can we kind of shift this stuff up the agenda 
it's difficult, isn't it? Because media tends to be so focused on whatever is, you know, the, the, the big thing at the time and transport does get pushed down the agenda. But um, I'd like to think, you know, e even when, um, when we were in lockdown at the five o'clock briefings, transport was, you know, there was always a slide on transport and we were supporting that from behind the scenes. And it's, it was, it was great to see that um, the changes in transport that happened as a, as a result of that. Um, but obviously we don't want another pandemic before transport is put up there on five o'clock briefings kind of thing. So um, I don't know what the golden answer is for that one, other than just to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing um, to, to put it more on the agenda. I think it's, it's, it's a really tricky one. Definitely, because people just think it's transport. People are so passive about it um, because it's, you know, it's just something we take for granted, which yeah. is one of the challenges. I would agree. I think maybe it's our job to sort of promote it and to sort of promote it as a co-benefit of a lot of things um, and its connect interconnections with, with housing, with biodiversity, with um you know health and well-being and air quality and all these other aspects that yeah it's really essential and you can't ignore it and it tends to be a shame because you only really hear about transport on the news when something bad happens when you yeah. the petrol prices or you've got a strike or you've got all of this but maybe it's our job as transport planners and people working in the transport sector to really sell those success stories of okay this new scheme has created access for this many children to be able to walk to school safely and it's not quite the headline of the doomsday you know petrol prices and things like that but yeah just chipping away at selling the small success stories can hopefully try and bring it up higher on the agenda yeah i think so that's really interesting yeah it's it, it is just something I don't think I've ever really sort of thought about. I don't sort of often see it on the news. I, I guess with COP, it was maybe more at the forefront, but actually, you know, this conversation is about net zero and transport is the biggest contributor in, well, in Scotland, at least for emissions. So actually it should be something that we talk about more, shouldn't it? So absolutely, Matt, I think that's a really, really apposite question. Mm. We've got a question from Neil, which... I, as I read it, is around how do we mix new mobility and traditional public transport? Because, you know, we've mentioned how crucial that intermodal relationship is going to be. But who leads that? Is that for new players to come and knock on the door? Is that for established public transport to look for diversification? Where would you see that responsibility lying? I'm not sure where the responsibility lies, but um, Neil, if you've not seen it, please go back to our, our combo travel report, um, because that very much encompasses that that use of legacy transport and public transport with new modes, such as uh, an e-bike or um, a mobility scooter, putting it onto a bus, for example, so you can combine those different ways. Um, I guess there is responsibility with um, public transport to make the space on the buses um, and, and which we do very badly in the UK um, you know in, in other countries such as um, Canada and America it's very easy to just they, they carry a bike carrier behind so you just stick your bike on and then carry on um, whereas we you know we struggle to do that the, the spaces on on buses usually are for um, buggies and, and wheelchair users as they should be but we need that additional space um, to enable us to take other modes of transport on um, and I think that the more we can experiment and do trials with that kind of thing which we are in some areas are as well um, the more we can do but we're certainly from our side at Innovate UK that's something this combo travel aspect is something we're working on more and more certainly with the Connected Places Catapult um, to try and work out what the next phase of that is and I would love for, for funding to appear so that we can do some trials. If there's anybody out there with deep pockets, um, it would be great for us to do some trials on that because I know there are a lot of really good innovations out there so we could start combining them and get them funded and get them to market, which is the, obviously the tricky thing. Maybe it's a bit within that transport utopia, but 
I would kind of like to see with sort of the move towards Great British Rail uh, to have sort of maybe what they have in the Netherlands in terms of the shared public transport bikes, um, you know, come all under one umbrella with the National Rail Company um so that that's mixing new and traditional modes um but i think it's also partly down to sort of third party operators like google maps to make sure that they've got everything on they've got all the modes of transport and all the options on there and there's information about all of them and the default option is the low carbon option or the the best option or there's more person personalization in that in terms mm -hmm. of what are your needs um in terms of what what's available to you or affordable for you um and so probably more collaboration across the board between sort of traditional and new modes of transport is needed that's yeah i totally i totally agree and i think that's a really good example and a really practical example natalie that i think is really helpful um I think this is probably going to be my last question and it's it's inspired by a couple of questions in the chat so around planning and space and mobility hubs um and obviously at Como we are absolutely loving mobility hubs we definitely think they're part of the future and really can embolden new mobility but I wanted to get your guys opinion on how they can be as accessible in every sense of the word as possible Mm. thinking faces again that's the sign of a good question i think that's what i'm going to it tell is, yeah i think um trans transport hubs getting to be accessible um again it's down to that information it's down to um that wide thinking of not just expecting your your typical um 20 to 50 year old worker bee, you know, how, how can we make that for, for everybody to, to be more, um, more accessible with just thinking about how people get there, whether it'll pass what I call the flip-flop test. Can they walk there in a pair of flip-flops, for example? What facilities have they got there? Um, and what facilities have they not got there? which is equally as important, depending on the types of accessible needs that different people have. Um, and then of course, the, 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 the typical ones which really get forgotten, especially in car parks, is that they'll have um, spaces for, for wheelchair users and then they'll have no drop curb to get out of the car park, which is really bad. So, you know, just basic thinking. So it is a really tricky one though. Hopefully that answers it a little bit. Yeah, I think I think putting them in a in a big plaza in a very in a, like an overlooked area, people feel safe there. It's not in some some corner or behind some train station. It's front and centre, and it's got public toilets and all of those kind of things. And importantly, that it's it's already on someone's journey or it's already close to where they're going to be going, and it's not it's not an additional stop on their trip. Um, so. Yeah, I think mobility hubs are the future and I'm quite excited to see more of them, more of them come out and sort of go from concept to sort of reality. Absolutely. I like to think as well that mobility hubs are not just, you know, that if they have these areas where people can, can meet, that they're not just for meetings, that they are the local knitting club or, or whatever can use them as well, you know, that they are for, for the local community. I think that that will be um, a really good aspect. And, and just smaller things like no black mats outside because people with Alzheimer's think they're a big hole in the floor. Little oh, things yeah. like that are really important. Guys, thank you so very much for the opportunity to pick both of your brains. I'm sure everyone at home has found it really informational. I know I certainly have. So thank you again. And I'll hand back over to Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks. And thanks to Carla, Natalie and Rachel for what was a fantastic discussion and conversation. I think my key takeaway, got a long way to go to get away from what was described as a cookie cutter approach around a, a reference man, but also how multidimensional that challenge is 
in terms of what we can learn from good practice, including places like the Netherlands, how the professions need to change the way they work, what data we collect, how we consult. But the report that Natalie did with us and that people have been talking about on this uh, event can help. It highlights practical examples of what transport authorities have done so that transport can meet what's known as the four A's of inclusion, availability, accessibility, affordability and accessibility and it also seeks to provide a framework for better decision making and delivery of future mobility so we consider social inclusion alongside environmental and economic goals so check it out on our website hope you can join us for urban transport next 13 details before too long and in the meantime thanks again to Carla, Natalie and Rachel and to everyone who took part live those listening in to the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube thank you and goodbye <laughs>